This is The Love and Show. Today we are joined by Hafsa Lodi, a journalist and author of Modesty, a Fashion Paradox. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Not at all. Um, how are you doing? Tell us a little bit about your book because we know that it launched right at the same time as COVID-19, right? And you were planning to travel at the time. Yes. Okay, so this is my book. Um, it's called Modesty, a Fashion Paradox. It's a non-fiction kind of investigation into the global rise of the modest fashion movement, which we've seen here and we're kind of desensitized um, to it here in the Middle East because modest fashion is kind of part of the cultural dress code here. But in the UK, in the US, it's really um, been becoming more mainstream with big designers like Gucci and Valentino and Tommy Hilfiger and Michael Kors and H&M all kind of making um, more modest collections for modest consumers. So um, yeah, that's kind of what the book is about. The big bloggers, the designers, the entrepreneurs who are kind of spearheading um, this new style movement. And it launched in the UAE um, at the Emirates Lit Festival, which is amazing. Um, right as COVID was trying, like was starting to kind of come into our news feeds and everything. Yeah, right when it was starting to spread. But I mean, we were still kind of, it was a big crowd there. Nobody was wearing masks. Um, but the UK launch, which I was supposed to travel for and have this big book tour and everything in London. Um, and my publisher, Neem Tree Press, is actually based in London. So it's it's really a London book, this, this book, actually. Um, yeah, so that naturally got cancelled because the launch date was right smack when COVID was kind of peaking there. So yeah, and now... Um, Yesterday was the U.S. launch date, <laughs> yet there again, bad timing. So yeah, <laughs> just Maybe, kind of. Are you still doing kind of an online launch? Because there are people reading. I'm trying to be active on. Yeah, on social media, trying to kind of push it. Um, there's a lot of different. There's 40 voices uh, in the book, so 40 different women are kind of interviewed or referenced in the book. So trying to get everyone to kind of help and spread the word, which is which has been good. <laughs> Just go, which hopefully we can help with today. Um, but let's go back a little bit, because I know you've been a, a journalist, obviously, and a fashion journalist for a number of years. Have you always loved fashion? And do you still have the love for fashion, the passion for fashion? Yeah. No, I, I've always loved fashion. I would say my passion for fashion is still there, but my um, willingness to write about it maybe is waning. Um, I think you get disillusioned after writing about fashion for so long, because different trends and things you just see that it's it's all very superficial so I really enjoy now kind of writing about the deeper side about fashion I mean the different meanings like this modest fashion movement where is it stemming from it's, it's stemming from a place of faith but also feminism because a lot of non-religious women are kind of deciding to cover their skin more um, sustainability diversity inclusivity these are all kind of topics I want to delve more into now very cool and you American, I think, and you moved yes. here when you were a teenager. Were you aware then of the different approaches from different cultures to fashion? Like, were you aware of it then, or is it something that's Not really? And I think I'm my when I first moved, I moved here when I was 14, and I went to high school here, and I mean, went to university in Toronto and London, but came back here. But when I moved here, I wasn't that in tune to fashion at all. Like, I wouldn't say I knew anything about designers or. I mean, Dubai is all about designers, but I had never heard, I knew, I knew the word Gucci, but I didn't really knew what it meant, you know? So like, I was very out of touch with the designer scene until I moved here and like was introduced to all these Dubai divas and you realize it's kind of a, um, a norm here. Um, and different, I knew that there were different 
I, I knew that I always kind of dressed more modestly because it was part of my religious dress code, but I didn't really, um, I think I was a very narrow-minded at that young age. Like I thought all Muslims dressed one way or all, all South Asians dressed one way or all Americans dressed one way and um, definitely broadened my perspective being in an international school and growing up here. And talking about how you say that it was brought into your perspective, how do you think modest fa fashion is represented in media now? I think it's it's great. It's being um, very like increasingly championed by all these mainstream publications in, in the UK, in the US, here in the Middle East. Um, it's great that we have different uh, different kind of women with different kinds of women with different backgrounds being kind of the faces of the movement. I think the most um, the most popular is Halima Adan. She's a, Sud a Somali refugee to the U to the U.S. and she was kind of the first big runway model um, who wore wore a hijab. So it was really nice having that woman of color as the face of fashion in the U.S. Uh, the face of modest fashion in the U.S. So it's great. It's being um, it's being championed as a diverse and inclusive um, uh, inclusive movement in the middle east not so much we're kind of having more like the light-skinned traditional arab girls as the as kind of the faces of the movements here the the brand ambassadors and the models but i think um overall we're seeing a lot more um, diversity and inclusivity a hundred percent and like you said it is a movement and i think it's something that we've seen grow in the last five ten years but what how do you describe to some what is modest fashion is it covering head to toe yeah. is it you know so many different definitions and meanings. I think the most general definition and open-ended <laughs> explanation of modest fashion is that it's clothing that tends to cover your shoulders up to your wrists. Um, it covers your knees, possibly up to your ankles, and uh, doesn't include like plunging necklines or fitted silhouettes. It's more loose and airy. Um, it's not transparent or see-through, and it may or may not include a headscarf as well. And why was now for you, why was now the time to write this book? Um, actually for me, two years ago was the time to write this book, but it takes time and uh, I really wish it could, I could have just written it and it got launched pre-COVID, right when like everything was all good in the world. But um, we've seen like over the past 10 years, a, a big rise in modest fashion on runways and in stores. And now it's, it's, you know, the words modest and fashion were not used together in the mainstream industry 10 years ago. But like over the over the past half decade, I'd say it's become more than a buzzword. It's become a necessity for different brands to kind of um, diversify their their offerings to include modest fashion if they want to reach this demographic of um, modesty conscious consumers who make up a big um a big spending power in the world, according to all these recent projections, financial projections by um, the Dinar Standard and Reuters released a report that the modest fashion industry was a $368 billion industry. So it's really huge. So all these businesses are really uh, missing out if they don't uh, tap into that. So I think now, I mean, we've had a lot of magazine stories about modest models and hijabs on runways, and we've seen a lot of um, video campaigns with hijabi women, but there's each of them kind of focus on one specific topic or issue within the whole modest fashion movement. A lot of times, like the rise of modest fashion from a cultural point of view or the different controversies it may present, such as like, how is fashion modest if you're 
kind of promoting all your shameless selfies on social media, even if you're covered up? How is that modest from a different, from an inner modest standpoint? So like nothing really explored everything. And I wanted to get all of these different tangents in together in one book. So when Neem Tree Press, the publisher commissioned me to write this, it was, it, I could not say no. It, was, it wasn't my idea. They actually came and approached me with this because I had written extensively about modest fashion before for various publications. And you mentioned earlier that uh, for you, you've covered up maybe because of religious reasons, but now we've seen that people are now covering up for non-religious reasons. Yeah. I want to know, is this a trend? This is obviously a trend, but does this trend have a long-term lifespan? So I think for some, it's definitely a trend. For women who just follow what's um, on the runways and what they're feeling one day or the next, and you see long dresses with big balloon sleeves and ruffled hemlines and they look pretty and so they're wearing them one day and then shorter dresses the next day so it is a trend um, for some but for people who kind of are fed up with this sexualization of women's bodies in the mainstream film and fashion and entertainment industries and they kind of just feel more protected and more just covered and they just feel happier and more comfortable and confident in looser longer clothing i think that it may be a, it's definitely a lifestyle for them and they may be attracted to modest fashion for yeah exactly as you said reasons that are completely non-religious and what brands do you think are doing are doing proper justice to modest fashion and which brands are following trend uh, good question Ooh. Some brands are going to get mad. <laughs> well, maybe you don't have to answer the same but I think, I think designers good job. So I think one of the biggest uh, criticisms of designers entering modest fashion has been when they just do it for Ramadan and when they do it just for the Middle Eastern market. It's very obviously just for the, you know, it's just for the money. They're just making kaftans, like glamorous kaftans with embellishments, and they're calling it modest fashion. Yeah, it's modest, but it's only kaftans, and it's just for the Middle East, whereas there are tons of Muslim consumers and non-Muslim consumers who demand modest fashion year-round in the West, and that's been... Um, there's a woman named Zara Al-Jabri, and she's really outspoken about this. She said that when brands like Mango create their um, modest collections, it's during Ramadan and it's only available in like Dubai, Saudi, and Bahrain. And it includes like sleeveless jumpsuits and short glittery dresses. So they got like the glamour factor in there, but they didn't really, really <laughs> get the whole modesty factor in there. And yes, there's different um, interpretations and levels of modesty. So that's a kind of a hard uh, criticism to give. But um, yeah, I, I would say that's one of the main criticisms is that this is applicable to women worldwide. So it shouldn't be just a targeted Middle Eastern um, concept. This is actually, that's exactly why I asked because to my kind of non-educated fashion eyes, when I see uh, big designers, like, like you said, Gucci earlier doing, um, doing designs, it's very glamorous, it's, it's usually for Ramadan, it's, they're incredible, but they're not day-to-day -day wear. So I'm just wondering, is there any kind of brands championing modest fashion, cool, trendy, day-to-day -day stuff? Yeah, I would say, so if you look at a brand like Uniqlo, they um, teamed up with a hijabi fashion blogger and designer named Hannah Tajima, and they did very specialized hijabs with their um, their special air technology, breathable fabric technology. So something like that is like really, that's how to do it right. And they used a woman from this um, kind of space to collaborate with and they make, yeah, ready to wear, which a lot of non-Muslims buy into. It's not kind of marketed as just modest fashion. It's just, it's unique little fashion 
collab in, a, in collaboration with this blogger. So I think that's one way to do it. Like marry your um, sport or your uh, brand aesthetic with modesty in a way that's more genuine and um, isn't just about glamour. I think Nike is another great example. They made the Nike hijab, which so many women need a sports hijab in the world. And yeah, there were some other versions um, available before. Nike wasn't the first person to make a sport hijab, but it, it was amazing having this mainstream household name kind of, you know, kind of make this product for women. And yeah, it's, it's like how, how more, like what bigger name can you get than Nike and women? It was a, it was a landmark moment and I was surprised exactly. that more bigger sports brands haven't followed. It's even so obvious. Exactly, yeah. And now they've just last year launched their Modest Swimmer as well, which is, which is great for a lot of Arab uh, female athletes have been championing those. So I've seen some of those actually, but how, like you said there, Arab athletes have been championing them. How important is it to have strong influencers championing the brand to kind of the regular girl who's just scrolling on Instagram. Yeah. I think it makes a huge, so I think the whole reason we're talking about modest fashion today is because of these modest fashion bloggers on Instagram who kind of catapulted this niche underground trend into this mainstream movement. Um, if not for these uh, influencers, I don't think there would be this modest fashion movement or it wouldn't be as big. I don't think designers would have caught on to the fact that there's this huge market of fashion savvy and um, powerful, influential women who demand this sort of clothing. So I think it's so important for brands to link up with these, um, with influencers suited to their kind of brand aesthetic and the ideals they speak to. And I think um, it's even more important in this day and age to have influencers who are not just um, about fashion and taking photos, but who also kind of speak to bigger issues. So just for example, um, it was so tough choosing a cover for this book, but on the cover of the book is uh, Maria Idrisi. She's a part, uh, part Moroccan, part Pakistani Londoner. And she was actually the world's first hijabi model to star in a global campaign. H&M recruited her in 2015. And she only takes on, she's been on like the cover of Emirates Women and she's had a lot of amazing jobs, but she only takes on jobs that um, express her voice and that get her um, thoughts across. So she won't just do a shoot, a glamorous shoot. She has to get her thoughts about diversity and inclusion and faith in there as well. So I think that's really powerful. She's not just doing this for the fufu fashion. She's doing it for to get her message across always. Incredible. And just something I want to touch on before we go is something that you mentioned earlier that social media is pretty much a showcase, I reckon. So how do influencers find a balance between modesty and also sending their message to their audience? Yeah, I think it's such a fine line and it's so hard because all of these like big fashion bloggers we follow today, what is mo most of them just show their outfits and their beauty and their the beautiful food they're eating and their beautiful interiors of their homes. But I think it's important. Um, there's one example. Her name's Saira Arshad on Instagram. She's Shazera, if anyone wants to follow her. And she is a teacher. She lived in Kuwait and then she moved to Dubai, and then she recently moved back to Toronto. And on her Instagram, like if you open her Instagram, her feed is like, what beautiful images of you know like every glamorous dress but then also there's hoodies uh, she wears the hijab so sometimes she's wearing hoodies sometimes she's wearing more um like ready to wear sometimes she's wearing ethnic wear sometimes she's wearing um you know she's just lounging around at home but her stories showcase a lot more they they talk about charitable initiatives she does um, philanthropic trips she does 
um, different issues in general, like during the lockdown, how she was coping with her family, their first outing out, you know, like a lot of um, kind of, she went deeper than surface level, which is where a lot of influencers tend to just stick and stay. 100% too. Um, <laughs> before we get into our Team Chatty quiz, I want to ask you a quick question for anyone watching right now, where can they get your book? Yes, the book is available at, in Dubai at Magudi's and Kinokuniya and a, online at both of those stores and Amazon.ae, Amazon.com and BookDepository.com. Amazing. Well, congratulations on completing it. And it's a shame that we're out this time. Um, but we'll lead you into the teeny tiny Dubai quiz uh, where we ask Dubai residents, we give you 60 seconds, so I'm going to open my timer. And we just ask you some questions about Dubai and see how you get on. How prepared do you feel as someone who's lived here for over a decade? Oh, no. <laughs> Not very prepared. <laughs> well, this is our first time doing it, so uh, let's see how it goes. And if you have any feedback, do let us know. <laughs> okay. The teeny tiny Dubai quiz, 60 seconds with half Lodi. We're going to start now. How many Emirates are there? Oh, God. How long do I have for a question? <laughs> Give us 60 seconds total. Oh gosh, one. Okay, I'm just gonna say a number six. Name, Five or six. Name three of them. Russell Khema, Abu Dhabi, Fujairah. Nusrek Gocha, aka Salt Bay, is a famous chef. Name his Dubai restaurant. Salt Bay. No, Nusret. Name the horse who won the most recent Dubai World Cup. Name the, sorry? Name the horse who won the most recent Dubai World Cup. What no year idea. Did the Burj Khalifa open? Sorry? What year did the Burj Khalifa open? 2012? Name the world's tallest hotel. World's smallest hotel? Smallest. Oh, no. Burj Khalifa. <laughs> okay, well, that was the one minute. I'm just going okay. to take you through. I mean, this, this goes for our questions as well. So we'll relook. How many Emirates are there? There are seven. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I should know that. Uh, name three. You got that correct. I think you said Abu Dhabi, Fajera, and Rak. Nusrat yeah. um, Gocha. How do you pronounce the surname? Goke? Gocha? No idea. The you said Solpe, and then you said Nusrat, which is correct. Yeah. The horse who won most recent Taiwan Cup was Thunder Snow. I wouldn't have known. Niche. And the Burj Khalifa opened in 2010, and the world's tallest hotel is the Gavora, and it's located oh. on Shepside Road. Not Burj Khalifa? No, because that's, the Armani only takes like a couple of floors at the bottom. Ah, uh, yeah, okay, trick question. <laughs> <laughs> well, because it used to be the JW Marriott, and then it changed. Oh my god, I have no idea, but I don't get out enough. <laughs> well, I think we all have a bit of cabin fever after the last couple yeah. of <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so that is the Love and Show. Hafsa, thank you so thank much. You so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was a joy. <laughs> stay safe and we'll talk to you soon. You too. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. See you same time, same place next week. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.